Yes, we have a Portuguese squad, some younger players that are Portuguese, but we also have, you know, a Mexican international. Uh, now we have Adama on the right wing, Semedo on the right back, Cody in the middle. That's not a Portuguese team. That that no, is. Well, I don't think anybody, I don't think anybody was. No, I don't think anyone would say it is. I mean, Wolves spent a long time in the uh, in the doldrums, and I think those was who are old enough to remember when you know Wolves had a really great team in in Europe and everything, um, applauded the fact that Wolves has come back. Whoever you know, and, and certainly applauded the style that Wolves playing. Obviously, you get a lot of uh, abuse from West Brom fans, but that's to be expected. Um, Amar, thanks ever so much for your call. Do appreciate. It. We do have to move on because uh, waiting for us uh, in Mexico is our good. Friend friend John Bonfilio. Uh, John, a very good evening to you. Hey Martin, and uh, looking up who the Wolverhampton Wanderers Mexican player is, Raul Jimenez. Yes, absolutely, and uh, he's, he's a very effective player for them as well. I know you do like these um, detailed deconstruction of teams <laughs> in, the, uh, in the Premier League, it's one of your favourite spots. Let, let's start uh, w with Latin America this week, uh, John. Let's start with Easter Island, we, which we, we failed to do last week. We almost got around to Easter Island last week. Um, and, and basically it's one of those places that has to balance the need for tourism. It's one of those places that's got a beautiful site that people people want to go to and people you know, are encouraged to go to but of course it's it, at the same time as people are appreciating it it destroys the very thing that they're appreciating absolutely i mean easter island also known locally in indigenous languages as rapanui is um the fundamental brass tax of it is that it's it's two thousand miles plus from Chile that it ostensibly belongs to, you know, and for its entire history was one of the most remote inhabited places on earth. And, um, uh, but more recently over the course of the last 20 years, it's been discovered by tourism primarily because it was declared a UNESCO world heritage site in 1995, uh, because of the, the giant, you know, Easter Island statues that everyone will have a, a mental picture of. And the problem is, is that because you've suddenly got um, so many people going to this island to to see what's there in a touristic context, everything has to be taken there. And then obviously everything's not taken off of there at the end. So they've got a massive problem, like, you know, the usual kind of globalization problems, but which are massively exacerbated and amplified in really remote spaces. So the problem of waste in particular as well, the problem of um, you know, cultural loss in indigenous spaces, like young people leaving, going elsewhere, going to the mainland and cities and so on. So what, you know, what happens in these, in these, in these areas that you say are d highly dependent on a tourism economy context of the pandemic, you know, recently mm. where suddenly, you know, 90 odd percent of, of income into Easter Island disappears off the face of the earth. And particularly yeah. interesting because there's a lot of local activism that's that's been generated over the course of the last 10 years in in response to this in a kind of socio-environmental context, which is really good news. And is, is it a bit like, I guess, a kind of a beacon of the way things could be done in all these places to bring hope for the for the future in, term, in an environmental sense. And in particular, in East Island, there's this school of music and arts, um, which has really been at the forefront of change making of ecological constructions of environment and um, you know, and, and cultural discourse on the island, and in particular recently, one of the things which which they've been at the forefront of is developing 500 different small organic growing spaces for the for the hardest up families in the area as a result of of the COVID disaster. Yeah, and it's I presume it's stuck out in the middle of the ocean. 
Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it, the actual nearest place to it is Pitcairn Island. Uh, I mean, it's basically more Polynesia than it is uh, than it is Latin America, and uh, yeah, nowhere near anything else. And for a long time, the Easter Island statues, it, you know, there was a, a mystery of them. How did they how did they end up there and mm. so on? But now it's, it's become a really important case study environmentally in terms of you know in terms of what can be done. And there's a number of NGOs you know looking at. Um, at the island in particular, in terms of how to how to take things forward, there's a, a really interesting program by Plastic Oceans International at the moment that's working with a lot of local communities internationally. They, they call it a Blue Communities program, where they kind of highlight the best practice that's taking place in a lot of these remote communities and just try and you know assist them to to move forward. But for sure, a, a place you know one of the most remote places on Earth, which has really struggled environmentally recently, but which is you know there are chinks of light emerging in terms of what local people there um, have decided to do for themselves to to deal with these major global problems that, that are affronting them. Yeah. Uh, now, well, let's talk uh, a little bit about uh, another Latin American uh, sporting legend. Uh, and this is uh, Roberto Clemente, who's um, who's the best Latin American. I mean, I know they're crazy in in some countries more than others, but over the most of the continent, they're crazy uh, about baseball. And uh, Roberto Clemente, very much a legend of the game. Absolutely. And um, and actually, in a lot of parts of Latin America, baseball is even more popular than than soccer, would you believe? Certainly mm. in southern Mexico, where I am at the moment, there's not that much, uh, you know, high-end soccer play. But baseball, for for sure, in in, in a non-COVID context, would be one of the major sports. Clemente is really interesting because he was, I mean, hands down, you know, as all the reports say, um, Latin America's most famous major league player. He was the he was the best hitter in the leagues uh, four times, won the Golden Glove twelve times. He was on the All-Star team thirteen times in the late 60s and an early 70s and was single, you know, single-handedly basically responsible for getting the Pittsburgh Pirates, who were, you know, by all measures a mediocre team before he arrived, to two World Series titles. So you've got you've got the sporting component with him, and also the fact that you know he was dark-skinned and he got a lot of, you know, at that particular point in time, he got a lot mm. of um, diatribes both from you know public and other players and media and stuff. But the interesting thing about him was he gave talkback. You know, he, he gave back just as good as he, he got, which, which endeared him to, to, certainly to a Latin American crowd, maybe not so much to a, to a white Anglo-Saxon US crowd. But the other reason why he's so famous is because of his philanthropy, of the fact that he always kept his winter season free to go and help, um, you know, disenfranchised communities, communities that really, um, suffered in Latin America and invested a lot of his time and wealth in those communities. And it was in fact that which brought about his, his downfall where he was flying to Managua in, um, in Nicaragua on New Year's Eve in 1972, uh, just after an earthquake had killed 10,000 people there to, uh, to take aid and help out. And his plane um, basically fell into the ocean mm. and he disappeared. So, again, one of those figures who, you know, lived an incredible life, but also his death adds to the way that he's contemporaneously regarded um, in, a, in a broad, you know, contemporary Latin American context. Yeah, I think we've talked before about people who, who, who die young, um, who do, you know, achieve this legendary status, whether it's, you know, uh, Marilyn Monroe or Roberto Clemente. Um, just something else I wanted to talk about this week, which um, we always do a spot on the show called Who's Dead, which is basically, uh, because I love reading the obits, I, uh, I, you know, I read those in detail. So I always find obituaries probably more interesting than anything else in the paper because it's a complete life. Um, 
Uh, and uh, one of the obituaries in the Times this week was of Mercedes Barcha, who was married to uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who uh, wrote that very famous book, 100 Years of Solitude. Uh, you've probably read it, John. Uh, I haven't. But m more than, more than uh, his wife, or his widow now, obviously, more than his widow, she was very much his partner in the project. Yeah, and, and um, people go so far as to say that if it wasn't for her, the book wouldn't have been written. I mean, she mm. basically created the, you know, the social context, the financial context as well for him to um, to finish the book. I mean, she's regarded for sure as his wife and lover, but also as his his muse, his accomplice, and and so on. And there's a famous story told about about the book because it was his first book, and they they were living in in abject poverty. I mean, they're both Colombian, but they'd they traveled through the Americas and they were in Mexico City at this point. And um, at the point at which they were sending it off to the publishers, they were sending it off to Buenos Aires. And they, they, there was no other way of sending it other than a hard copy. But it's such a massive book that they couldn't actually afford to send the whole thing. So they, they, they gathered all their pennies and, and weighed the book, then weighed it again. And they managed to sell, send half the book off first time round, and then uh, pawned everything that they had in the house and managed to send the second half of the book off. And then obviously publishers, you know, the rest is, is history as, yeah. as they say. But yeah, for sure, you know, uh, actually interesting when I was looking at her earlier on today, there's a, there's a big diatribe on Wikipedia at the moment because some people are saying she's not famous in her own right. She's famous as an ancillary and therefore she shouldn't have her own Wikipedia page. And other people are saying, don't be ridiculous. Uh, she was clearly instrumental in, you know, in the, in the publication of one of the most important works of the 20th century. Uh, P.S. It, it is actually worth reading, Martin, honestly. Uh, yeah, well, I, I'm going to try it. I, I, I suspect in Latin America he's probably seen um, as, as like Charles Dickens over here. Um, or I suppose because it's a magical world that he creates, probably um, more like J.K. Rowling, I don't know. But uh, I'm, I'm definitely going to try and read it. I've got a couple of books to read about football first, but whenever I've read those, I'll try over the years. You don't, you, you don't do anything midweek between talk radio programmes anyway, do you? So you've got some time on your hands. I, you know, you're dead right. I do very little during the week, but I, somehow the days this is get filled up, you know, and I've watched The Tiger King now, so I don't need to watch that anymore. Um, but the days somehow get filled up, and I don't know how. Um, just only, a, if, go sorry, on. go on. I was uh, going to say, if only, if, only, if only we died young. Yes, I would be a legend now. Um, just, just one final story, and this is this uh, remarkable story about Volkswagen, who are now having to pay compensation to people who were, we know, that we remember the VWs who were being built in uh, Brazil, um, you know, because people, people who were real VW specialists would say, oh, that's not a proper Beetle, it's one of those that was made in Brazil. But they're now paying compensation to some of the people who worked making the uh, Volkswagen cars in Brazil. Yeah, there was a lawsuit brought a few years ago against Volkswagen in, in Brazil, which um, dates back to the military dictatorship of 64 to, uh, to 85, and essentially the tortured and the disappeared in, in the country during that time, 4,000, roughly 4,000 killed, 40,000 tortured. But it seems they've now admitted, Volkswagen now admitted, that there was basically institutional shopping of subversives um, that worked for the company. So where somebody maybe, you know, was making a bit of noise or unionizing or something like that, doing something that the, um, the, the, the military dictatorship or the company didn't like, they would basically give their name to the authorities and then get them, 
you know, tortured or killed. And this was part of company policy. So they've designated a, a five million pound fund um, in compensation for this, which, to be honest, uh, you know, in the context of what took place and the numbers involved, five million pounds doesn't seem too much in terms of what took place. But really interesting that they've, that, you know, they've fronted up and yeah. said, no, you know, we, we did it. We've, we've got to make amends here. Yeah, I mean, so it's, it's all part of the of the trend for looking back at history, and you know it goes back to the colonialism and everything in the the states and all that. Uh, it's a current trend for looking back at history and admitting what you did wrong, which seems to be, uh, thankfully, it's what people do these days. Yeah, um, it, I mean, for sure, it's you know I'm, I'm no great wise man, but I would have thought it's really uncontroversial to to say that looking back and trying to make peace with what took place in the past, you know, kind of lays the groundwork for maybe moving ahead uh, in a slightly less problematic way than, than we've been doing since forever. Yeah. Well, um, John, thank you ever so much for joining us. We'll, uh, we'll talk again next week. We do appreciate it. I think we've got built up a bit of a delay on the line. So we'll, t- we'll take a wee bit of a break. Uh, we're also going to uh, look back at um, some of the news of the week with David Spencer, who will join us very shortly.